You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, Molly, would you mind holding this gas cap while I get the pump going? It's actually attached, Seth, with this rubber thing. All right, now let me get my card out. Okay, there. All right, you can begin pumping. Okay. And, and to think, this liquid luxury was once just tiny animals and plants. Yeah, like we see by the road there, choking on the gasoline fumes of the cars. Yeah, but these tiny ocean animals and plants, and by the way, they weren't dinosaurs, as a lot of people seem to believe, they lived their gusto-grabbing lifestyle millions of years ago. They died, they decayed, they were buried, they were compressed, turned into crude oil, petroleum, and that into gasoline. Okay, it looks like it's full. That should do it. All right, well, let's get back in and get on our way. We turn that slick and sticky petroleum into gasoline, so we have those ancient tiny creatures to thank for powering your car, and millions more like it. Look at that highway jam. That's okay. We're getting off the highway soon. That's good. I've always wondered where you get off. Yeah, right. But someday we might be able to thank today's living things for their converted energy. You know, grass, algae, even microorganisms. A lot of work is going on in alternative sources of fuel, of biofuel. In fact, so much innovation is underway, you could call the research landscape fuels paradise. You could, and we are. We'll survey a number of sources of biofuels and also ask whether alternative fuel could power ships to the stars. Welcome to Big Picture Science and to this crop field. I'm Seth Shostak. Well, Seth, I wonder if we should even be in this field. Whose is this? I don't know. Was it posted? I hope the owner doesn't have a shotgun. (laughs) See if you can spot any circles in this crop field. Yeah, well, there might be some. I don't know who's been visiting. Hey, watch where you're standing there. Yeah, watch out. That looks like a cow deposit. Well, here we are. Yep, among the tall grass of whatever kind of grass this is. Imagine growing what you put in your car instead of sucking it out of the ground. Biofuels are made out of anything that is or ever was a plant. So why are we standing here today? Well, a hundred years ago, we might be standing in a coal mine or on an oil field. Up to now, coal has been cheap, natural gas has been cheap, and the 1970s gas shortage aside, gas has been cheap. Well, natural gas and oil are no longer cheap, and coal is a heavy polluter. So today, we're concerned about energy security, climate change, and the strategic consequences of importing so much of our energy supply. So for these reasons, alternative sources of energy are moving into the spotlight. The innovation is particularly strong in the area of biofuels. And that brings us to this agricultural acreage here. And we'll help growing into this idea of biofuels and get the big picture with someone who works in the field, as it were. I'm Madhu Khanna. I'm a professor of agriculture and environmental economics at the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. Dr. Khanna says that up until now, biofuel has been corn ethanol or biodiesel. But while the technology of corn ethanol has matured, corn as a source of biofuel has kind of fallen out of favor. The problem with corn ethanol is that there are limits to how much we would want to expand in the future because it's competing directly with the use of corn for food and feed and therefore contributes to an increase in the price of food and feed for consumers, uh, not only in the U.S. but all over the world. Corn is an example of a first-generation biofuel. We're interested in what comes next. 
First generation biofuels are those produced from food-based sources, uh, primarily corn and soybeans in the U.S., uh, sugarcane in Brazil, and rapeseed, wheat, and barley in the European Union. Second generation biofuels are those that are currently under research and would be produced from cellulosic feedstocks, which can be obtained from a variety of different sources. Such as trees, woody biomass, perennial grasses, even municipal solid waste, all of which can provide cellulosic material for liquid fuel. Okay, cellulosic comes from cellulose, the main stuff that makes up the cell walls in plants, such as the plants beneath our feet here. It's the fibrous stuff that holds a plant up. <laughs> At least it did until you ripped it out of the ground. Well, all right, well, we don't need it and we don't usually eat it, although we frame our houses with it, it's called lumber. Humans don't have the enzymes to break down cellulose, but cows do. And that's what they're doing when they're standing there with that funny look in their eyes, chewing their cellulose. Now, the first question in making a biofuel, what plant are you going to use? There are many in the running, all with their challenges. But one of the most popular cellulosic grasses being considered is miscanthus. Miscanthus giganteus. This is a grass from the Far East. It's an ornamental grass and it's been grown in Europe. It's been introduced into the U.S. at experimental levels, particularly at the University of Illinois on their experiment farms. And it seems to have the potential to produce very high yields of biomass that in some places could be twice as high as those of switchgrass and requires very limited amounts of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium in order to maintain the productivity. Stephen Long is professor of crop science and plant biology at the University of Illinois, and he's focusing on miscanthus as a biofuel crop. We just heard that miscanthus has high yield, but what does that mean? In looking for biofuel sources, you clearly want something which is going to give you the most amount of biomass energy per acre of land, because this is important both for economics, but also the amount of land you're going to impact with, if you like, this new, new industry. So basically, the higher the yield, the more profitable it is, and the less it will impinge on other uses of the land. So when you say high yield, it means that you have more plants per acre? More mass of plant, basically tons of dry matter. Now, isn't miscanthus kind of a slim grass, or is it sort of a a bushy grass? What gives it so much mass? Well, an individual stem is, is quite slim, but it will grow to 13 to 14 feet in a single year with a very high density of stems. So so if you like, it's sort of an instant grass forest. So this is the sort of grass that if you were to walk in a field of miscanthus, you could soon lose yourself. No one might find you. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, all of these grasses have something called cellulose in them. That's why they're cellulosic biofuels. And isn't cellulose hard to break down? And if so, how do you do that with miscanthus? How do you break it down and get out what you need? You're correct that cellulose is hard to break down. When we're making corn ethanol, we're breaking down starch, which is a polymer of glucose, and that's easy to break down. Cellulose is also a polymer of glucose, but it's much harder to break down. So when I say a polymer, that means that it's basically molecules of sugar complexed together. The advantage of cellulose is that it's in all plant material, including material we otherwise wouldn't use, stems of plants, the dead leaves of plants, and so on. But of course, in the rumen of a cow, in the gut of many insects, cellulose is broken down. So nature does have enzymes which will break cellulose down. And so a focus of our institute has been in actually finding the best of those enzymes to um, accelerate the breakdown of cellulose to sugar. The sugar we can then ferment to ethanol or to other fuels. Now, why create ethanol and not some other biofuel? What is it about ethanol that makes it one of the popular biofuels? Well, we are looking at other biofuels, ones which would be much closer to petroleum, for example. But of course, ethanol is one that we've known how to make for centuries. So we're already doing one hard thing, that's releasing the sugars from the cellulose. So if you like, the next stage of the technology should perhaps be a mature type. So the the first focus is really ethanol. And of course, ethanol is already used in our existing transportation network. So that's why ethanol is an early fuel in this area. Of course, there's a great deal of interest in producing something which is much closer 
to petroleum, that just may be a little bit further along. But miscanthus could be a feedstock for both ethanol and for these more advanced biofuels. Now, Steve, isn't the big concern, one of the big concerns, how much carbon dioxide we're putting into the atmosphere? And plants release CO2. So how does growing more miscanthus, more of any plant, help us with our climate concerns? Actually, when a crop is growing, any crop, It is a net extractor of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So although it releases some in respiration, it removes a great deal more in photosynthesis. So all of the biomass we see there with miscanthus, with the forest, is carbon dioxide which has been taken out of the atmosphere. Now when we convert that to a fuel and we burn it in our cars or wherever, we're putting it back in the atmosphere. But of course this is a, if you like, a closed cycle. We're taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere and then putting it back. With fossil fuel oil, most of the oil we use in our cars today, we're taking ancient reserves out of the ground and then releasing them to the atmosphere. So this technology does have the possibility to become what we would call CO2 neutral or close to CO2 neutral. So what is the the number one challenge or obstacle to uh, creating the kind of biofuel from miscanthus that you would like to? Is it breaking down that cellulose efficiently? Is it scaling up? What is it? I'd say the biggest challenge is really in breaking down, releasing the sugars from that. That is the most difficult step. But we've seen huge progress occur in the last three or four years as both oil companies and governments have focused a lot more attention on this problem. So really, every day, this is looking more and more viable. Steve Long, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you for your interest. Stephen Long is professor of crop science and plant biology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Well, this biofuel idea is not just a passing fancy. Congress has mandated that we produce 36 billion gallons of biofuel by 2022. About 20% of that is cellulosic ethanol. And ethanol was the original biofuel. C2H5OH, you know it as ethyl alcohol. Whiskey. Gin. Vodka. Hooch. Moonshine. Surely one of the earliest chemical products made by man and still in great demand at parties. But it's also a good fuel. So how can you get liquid from a plant? Well, the way moonshiners did, pretty much. You just break down the cellulose to sugar, as we heard. Then you use some microorganism, like yeast, to turn the sugar into ethanol. Now the yeast gobble up sugar and the alcohol is their waste product, if you like. Molly saw this firsthand at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm here at the science fair at the University of California, Berkeley, in an auditorium that is packed with people, a lot of kids, and many tables that have very interesting experiments on them. And it looks like there's one here with lots of beakers, actually very large, oversized beakers, and it looks like they are turning sugars into biofuels. Let's find out more. So I'm Brett Sturgeon. I'm a PhD student and graduate student researcher at the Energy Bioscience Institute here on campus. You're actually wearing a white coat. I'm wearing a white lab coat in proper uniform for the, for the situation. So I'm, I'm here helping to explain how we're making ethanol from lignocellulosic feedstocks. What do you begin with? Okay, so we begin with all the way back, uh, we started with grass or tree kind of materials. So basically the fungus helped us convert long fiber molecules. They chopped it up into little sugar molecules and we filter it out and we essentially get a sugar water. So we have sugar water and here we'll blend it with uh, yeast. And yeast, just like you use at home in making bread or you could make beer, it goes through the same process. So you add yeast to the sugar water and the yeast will consume the sugar and just like us, they breathe out carbon dioxide. That's what's filling the bag here. And they also excrete ethanol, which is our target molecule. That's what we want the yeast to do. Now, you have a couple beakers here. They have all these appendages and things sticking out of them. Can you describe that and what's going on? Okay, so so here we have a chemostat, which is basically just a mini fermentation tank. A tank where you'd have basically the sugar, water, and yeast, and it's stirring it to keep it active. The yeast is thriving on all the sugar, so they're growing very fast, and they're making it look like a muddy water. But all the cloudiness in there is the yeast cells themselves. Does that look like anything you'd like to drink? No. No, Are you sure? No. (laughs) Okay. Could you drink that? I would not recommend it based on the feedstock that we started with. But it's all organic, right? Natural? It is is all organic, but we're starting here with grasses and trees and stuff. Whereas the the current ethanol facilities that you would see in the U.S. and Brazil start with corn or they start with sugarcane. And that, you know, that, that stuff I would be more than happy to drink because that's, you know, tasty. Whereas this stuff started with food that you don't want to really consume yourself. 
Okay, so this is stirring and stirring and stirring, and then it goes over to this contraption here. Can you describe that? So here we're sending the, the ethanol water mixture into uh, a distillation setup. So we, we basically put the water and ethanol mixture into the bottom where there's a, a boiling pot, essentially. And because ethanol has a lower boiling point than water, the ethanol is going to try to escape the liquid phase first. So it's going to try to climb through all of these tubes. And at the top, we have a condensation chamber. What you see here is a cold water jacket at the top. So as the ethanol is ab about to escape all the way at the top of this chimney-looking thing, it's going to cool down and the ethanol will condense again. And then we trap it right there in the collection tank. This is your fuel here then. Right, so... Now how does this compare to gasoline? Ethanol can right now be blended into gasoline. Throughout the U.S. it's blended typically between 5 and 10% indoor gasoline. In Brazil they blend you know, any mixture between 20 and 100% ethanol. So it can work in the exact same as gasoline does in an engine. It just has a little bit lower energy density, so you need, you need to be sensitive to that when you're designing car engines. So if I put that into my car, yep. that would actually have the power, the oomph that gasoline would give my car. Ethanol would have the same amount of power. I could go as far. I could accelerate everything you need to do in a car. Well, so if you fill your tank up with 100% ethanol, if you had a, a flexible fuel vehicle that is already tuned to doing this, you would actually only be able to go about two-thirds as far as if you had a full tank full of gasoline, just because ethanol doesn't quite have the energy density of gasoline. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Coming up, more ideas to fuel your imagination and one day perhaps your cars. It's Fuel's Paradise on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired, wherever you get your podcasts. We're here in a field, I hope it's not left field, Molly, discussing how plants could be grown in this soil down here. Ow, jeez. And turned into <laughs> stickers in there and turned into biofuel. Helping us put this process into perspective is environmental economist Madhu Khanna. But as I look around this field, I wonder why now? There's much greater recognition of climate change, the need to reduce dependence on foreign oil, as well as the fact that these technologies for biofuel production seem to be closer on the horizon. And so the confluence of a number of different factors have spurred this interest in biofuels now. But she reminds us people want cropland for growing food. The food fuel debate has become contentious as biofuel production has increased. Corn, sugar, vegetable oil, are fuel for humans as well as cars. So the question is, does biofuel production lead to food shortages or an increase in the price of food? Biofuels do contribute to the increase in food prices, but there are a number of other factors that have led to that, including the high price of oil. So the consensus, and at least from the literature that seems to emerge, is that one would say, well, maybe about 10 to 20 percent of the food price increase could be due to biofuels. Is that all biofuels? A lot of the focus has been on corn crops. Currently, of course, we're only producing corn ethanol and soy diesel at a large scale. So, you know, much of the increase we've seen in the past is because of the rising share of corn production for biofuel production. The extent to which we may see this in the future depends on what type of material or feedstocks we're going to be using for biofuel production. As we move towards cellulosic feedstocks, and particularly as we start using crop residue forest residues, and perennial grasses, the extent to which we would be directly competing for cropland would be much less because crop residues and forest residues are simply a byproduct of crop production or wood production. Perennial grasses can be grown on non-cropland. And if we do that, 
then we can produce large quantities because these are much higher yielding. We would be getting almost twice as many gallons of fuel as per acre of land as compared to those that we get from corn ethanol, and therefore the impact on food production should be much less than what we've observed in the case of corn ethanol. Corn ethanol, any ethanol, it's all to replace gasoline. But at the moment, I'm still gassing up. So let's get out of this field and into a car. Okay, and thanks to our car and a magic harp. Here we are, the ocean. Maybe magic harps will solve our future travel needs. Ah, taking a breath of ocean air, and when you do, thank your lucky microorganisms for the oxygen that fills your lungs. The vast majority is produced by marine plants, single-celled photosynthetic algae. And now those little guys might churn out biofuel. Why? Well, because algae can naturally produce oil, says astrobiologist Jonathan Trent. In fact, most of the fossil fuel we use today were from algae that lived millions of years ago. The original oil producers. And these little suckers are efficient. Growing corn produces about 350 gallons of ethanol per acre. But some algae can top that. Microalgae, or at least some species of microalgae, can produce on the order of 2,000 to 5,000 gallons per acre per year. So they're by far the best source of oil that we know about on the planet. And that oil could be easily used as a biofuel. In this way, researchers eliminate the middle grass, that is, growing a plant that microbes convert into fuel. Just have the microbes make the fuel directly. Oil from algae can be used just like the cast-off french fry oil that some people pump into their vehicles today. Smells great. Usually algae are grown in tanks or bioreactors, but Jonathan Trent wants to grow them out there in the open ocean. Well, in plastic membranes anyhow. Otherwise, these guys just float off and do their own thing. Offshore membrane enclosures for growing algae, or Omega. The project is in the testing stages at the NASA Ames Research Center. Oh, not only do the algae produce oil, that is lipids, they can do it by eating the waste that we dump into our oceans. Yep, these little guys that coat your swimming suit in a veneer of slime could be the ultimate green fuel. Some species of algae store loads of oil. That's a bit like the way we store loads of fat. Well, they store fat also. And that fat, which is their storage product under really harsh conditions, turns into the oil that we now burn. High energy density and extremely easy to transform into fuels. The problem is, how do we grow these microalgae in sufficient quantities to get the 18 million barrels of oil that we use in the United States every day? And the answer has to be, I'm afraid, some way that doesn't compete with agriculture for land, water, or fertilizer. So how do we do that? And that was the problem that we confronted when we started what we call Omega. All right, so certain algae actually produce a great deal of oil. You've identified the algae that do this best, have you? People have been looking for algae that um, produce oil for many, many years. And they find algal strains, microalgae that is, diatoms and green algae, that produce up to 60% oil by dry weight, which is a load. Okay, so you know which algae are the ones that you're interested in. So what's the scheme? Where are you going to grow them then? The problem, that, as we saw it, was can't use land because we don't want to compete with agriculture, can't use water because we don't want to compete with agriculture, can't use fertilizer because we don't want to compete with agriculture. So how are we going to do it? Well, the solution we came up with is to grow them offshore. Hey, wait a minute. We already dump our wastewater offshore. In fact, you know, the city of San Francisco has three offshore wastewater outfalls. One of them, the southeast plant, dumps about 65 million gallons a day of nutrient-rich fresh water into the bay. So there's the nutrient and the water problem solved. And if we could only figure out how to grow them floating in the bay, then maybe we don't have a land problem either. Maybe we can do a sort of end run around all three of those problems with regard to agriculture. Oh, and by the way, if we grow them, let's say, in a floating plastic enclosure, a little module that's shallow, made of some kind of inexpensive plastic, and it's floating on the sea surface, we solve a bunch of other problems, too. For example, the heat capacity of the surrounding water controls the temperature inside our little module. The waves provide energy for mixing. So when the solar energy beats down on them and we get solar energy harvested to a liquid fuel... We have the temperature controlled without any, you know, sweat off our brows. 
And we have a source of energy from waves to do the mixing. All good things. Oh, and by the way, if the algae escape, they're freshwater algae inside, so they can't be invasive species. They die in salt water. Have you tried this out? I mean, this all sounds terrific. Uh, have you actually done an experiment and tried to grow oh. large amounts of uh, algae offshore in, the, in, in some effluent somewhere? Yeah, some, well, Seth, some outlet pipe area? <laughs> well, I'm an experimentalist, right, Seth? So the first thing we did was to make little plastic baggies and put algae in them with media from wastewater. And sure enough, they grow beautifully. And despite the fact that people warned us, well, there's, you know, soap products and shampoo or so-called personal care products and pharmaceutical products going out in our wastewater, and maybe that'll inhibit our, our microalgae, but not the case. They grow beautifully. They grow really well. Okay. Are you ready to scale it up? I mean, can you scale it up? Because after all, I, in all honesty, I've read about other attempts to do this. There are a lot of people looking at biofuels. You know, I have to ask, what is it that you have that they don't have? Well, there are these two camps right now for growing biofuels, or at least doing algal-based biofuels. One says you have to grow them in open ponds, very shallow, very simple to build in an area that's a f not agricultural land, let's say a desert someplace. And so we're going to grow them in these shallow ponds. Now, the problem with shallow ponds are they're open, so there's evaporation, so there's a problem with water. So even if you fill them with salt water and grow marine algae, which are good, they produce oil too, then you still have a problem with the salt concentration getting too high as they evaporate. And what about weed species that fall in? Oh, and where are you going to get the water? Even if you grow them on wastewater, you're going to pump the wastewater out to the desert? So the ponds have problems. Might work, but they have problems. So what we have that they don't have is, boy, we're going to use the existing infrastructure. The major cities on the coast, and most of the people in the United States are along the coast. And so we're going to use the existing outfalls, and conceivably we could use all the different outfalls along the coast, 11 billion gallons a day of wastewater pumped into the ocean. If we could somehow harness all that wastewater, we could produce probably close to 30% of all our fuel needs in the United States just from wastewater. And there's ways, of course, we could make this even a bigger number once we get the system rolling. Well, let me pursue that a little bit because, uh, to some extent, the energy is coming from sunlight. Is that correct? Correct. The okay. photosynthetic. Well, uh, you know, uh, on a sunny day here in California, there might be on the order of, I don't know, about a, a horsepower per square yard, per square meter, falling on the ocean there. Now, my car demands at least, I don't know, 50 horsepower, <laughs> okay? So, you know, that's already a lot of, that's a lot of uh, algae just to power my car. Can, can you actually do this without covering the Pacific uh, with algae? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I told you we could get on the order of 2,000 gallons per acre per year, extrapolating from reasonable laboratory procedures that have proven how much oil you can get from algae. The theoretical number is about 6,000 gallons per acre per year. But there's another little tweak you can do to the system, a tweak that allows us to grow the algae not only autotrophically, not only using sunlight, but also heterotrophically. So at night, if you feed the algae sugars from a source that hopefully is also a waste stream, you could kick those algae even farther up in terms of the density they produce. And by the way, when you feed them sugar, they produce a whole lot more oil. So we could potentially push the system really far up in terms of how much oil we're producing. Jonathan, describe for me how this actually works. I mean, you've, you've said that you're going to have these plastic enclosures floating in, uh, to begin with, San Francisco Bay, where there's an outflow, where there's an outlet pipe, as, as it were, for our wastewater. Uh, they're going to be out there in the sun. They're in this nice bath. It always stays at more or less the same temperature. But how do you get the oil out of these uh, floating farms? Well, okay, so imagine that you, instead of dumping this wastewater out into the ocean where, or into a bay where it causes algal blooms and sometimes very problematic toxic strains of algae grow up on this wastewater that we're dumping there because it's high in nutrients, let's say we capture that water in these floating enclosures, which are look for all the world like a pool cover, except they're transparent. So in other words, they're fairly shallow but large in extent. They're basking in the sun, and we now have fresh water in these things. They're moved by waves, and the solar energy is beating down on them, and the algae are growing. Periodically, we will drain these bags after they grow, and algae grow really fast. So we're talking about plants that have 
no roots or stems or leaves. I mean, we're talking about single-celled algae that do nothing in life but divide and produce oil and all the rest of the life material. So, so these guys are the fastest-growing plants on the planet. We can harvest them every four to five days, maybe five to six days if it's cold water and wintertime and such. But okay, so now we're going to pull them out and we're going to remove a bunch of the water, and we can do part of that by a process called forward osmosis, taking advantage of the fact that there's a gradient of salt from the freshwater inside to the saltwater outside and a membrane structure that is available commercially that allows water to pass through and salt not to pass back in. Okay, so we move part of the water that way and we remove the rest of the water by a whole variety of different techniques. And now we squeeze the oil out of the algae. And some of these algae might be as much as 60% oil by weight. So now we squeeze the oil out, and what's left over? Protein and nucleic acid and carbohydrate. It's um, animal food. Or it's fertilizer because it's got phosphate and nitrogen in it. Or it's both. And so we can use that to make biogas, methane that is. Or we can feed it to our animals as a supplement. And we can put it on our crops. And so all the parts of the algae will be used. And all those different uses defray the cost of the economics of now us no longer hunting and gathering our fuel, but now cultivating in a sustainable, carbon-neutral way, and I might add an environmentally friendly way, a fuel of the future. I mean, this is a win-win. So Jonathan, the obvious final question, when will we see these fuel farms actually up and running What do you see as the future here? We need to try to do this in 10 to 20 years. We need to really work hard to get this to happen. But, you know, the project that we're working on now is to demonstrate to the world that this is feasible. And who will pick this up and run with it and how quickly it will develop is hard to say. But to use a term from NASA, failure is not an option. Jonathan Trent, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Well, that's exciting, Molly, to think of all those tiny oil producers out there in the ocean helping to fuel our gusto-grabbing lifestyles with wastewater. But how soon will this happen? Professor Marukana. So algae has a, a great potential, but we are quite far from commercial-scale production of algae, and it is very much still at the lab level. We're not even at the point where there are demonstration plants that can show how it can be done at scale at a reasonable cost. And so it's a promising technology for the future, but there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Well, personally, I'm rooting for those little green guys, but then, of course, I would, wouldn't I? There are a lot of potential sources of biofuel floating around and a lot of experimentation underway, but what might be the most intriguing and radical project? I think the most exciting thing that I've seen most recently is technologies being developed to convert municipal solid waste into biofuel. And there are experimental facilities that are in place that can actually take the garbage that we dump on the curbside and collect that all, and instead of putting it into the landfill, can use high levels of heat to convert it into liquid fuel, as well as to actually extract cellulose. Our biomass consists of a large amount of cellulosic material in it, uh, packaging material, paper, and so on. And it can extract that and convert it into cellulose that can be used for a number of things, including making paper, as well as making liquid fuel. And if there's one thing we'll never run out of, it's garbage. So in this case, we just heat up our garbage directly, rather than feed waste to algae, as Jonathan Trent proposes, That cuts out the middle algae. However, the algae route gives us a wider range of products, not only oil, but also animal feed, for example. But what if we design our biofuel bugs? Coming up, synthetic biology goes green. We're going cruising in our gas-powered car to get some lunch, but could we use second-generation biofuels to drive to the stars? It's a fuel's paradise on big-picture science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. 
check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. Can I get a spinach berry and goat cheese salad, please? Make that. Can you make it too? Okay. All right, thanks. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. We're talking about the production of biofuel. We've discussed creating oil directly and making ethanol from crops such as miscanthus. But when fuels rush in, there's usually more than one. We can be producing many different types of fuels. There is ethanol, there is butanol, there is drop-in fuels, there is biomass to liquids. Some of these fuels can be blended with gasoline. There are others that can be blended with diesel. Currently, all of these fuels are much more expensive to produce than gasoline. And the type of policy we have is going to drive the competitiveness of alternative types of fuels. The renewable fuel standard is really concerned with the energy content of those fuels. If in the future we were to have a cap-and-trade policy or if we were to have a national low-carbon fuel standard policy, those policies would promote a different mix of fuels. For example, a low-carbon fuel standard would promote fuels that have relatively lower greenhouse gas intensity and therefore might promote a miscanthus-based ethanol as opposed to corn ethanol. It's likely to promote more biomass to liquid diesel to replace diesel. And so the type of fuel that's going to be competitive is very closely linked with the policy support that's going to promote production in the future. Manducana mentions butanol. Now, butanol is a hydrocarbon, like ethanol, like gasoline, which means it's a string of hydrogen and carbon atoms. But it's a long string, four carbons as opposed to ethanol's two, so it's a higher energy content, more energy per gallon. When making biofuels, efficiency is the name of the game. Not just the energy content, but in making the fuel in the first place. So how do you boost that? Well, how about designing a biofuel microbe that's better than any that nature has produced. Consider Clostridium bacteria, certain species of which can be found in your intestine, just like the microbes from this salad will be in mine shortly. But this microbe also cranks out butanol as a part of its own metabolism. Pluck out the genes that code for butanol, as researchers at the University of California, Berkeley have done, and stick them into another microorganism, and you get your own tiny butanol factory. That other organism, by the way, is also at home in your intestine. It's E. coli. Employing synthetic biology, a process of mixing and matching genes to biofuel production, is what biochemist Michelle Chang and her team are doing in their lab. Clostridium has evolved to make butanol for its own reasons, and what we can do in the lab is to ask what is it that might make the most butanol um, that, and doesn't affect its life's lifestyle. And so E. coli is just easier to genetically manipulate, and both E. coli and yeast, which is currently used to make ethanol, are better industrial strains to work with because they grow faster and are more robust. Now, when you take the the genes out of Clostridium, do you do that here in the lab with one of these machines around me? Yes, so what we do is we actually take it out in the terms of sequence level, is we look at the DNA sequence and that allows us to design what we call recombinant DNAs that we can then put into E. coli. And that can be done in the laboratory without ever growing the Clostridium. So the clostridium isn't in this lab right now? No, no. But the E. coli is, and I understand you're growing some of it in the machine over here. Can we take a look? Sure. So we're here in front of this machine right now where everything inside that I can see is shaking. There are a bunch of bottles shaking and moving back and forth. What's going on? This is basically where we grow different laboratory bacterial strains, and so most of them prefer to be, at least E. coli prefers to be shaken in order to grow better, and part of that is for oxygenation. But it looks like it's a sealed machine. Where's the oxygen? It's not quite sealed. It's closed because it has to grow at a certain temperature. And so for E. coli, that's of course near body temperature, so it's warmer than indoors. And so the seal is really to keep the heat in. So this is how we control the growth temperature. So you just take the genes from Clostridium, you put them in into E. coli, you shake it up as you do here, and it begins to produce butanol right on schedule. Yeah, so basically this whole approach, which we call synthetic biology, is really a new way of thinking about doing chemistry, not just for fuels, but if you can make a molecule the same way just by growing an organism and taking it out of the uh, media that it's been growing in, then you don't have to build all these different sorts of chemical facilities for each individual reaction. Okay, so we'll let the E. coli shake in peace, 
and moved to another part of the lab. Clostridium has been used before to produce butanol. This isn't the only bioengineering project going on to create this. How is your approach different to what other labs have done? So other labs have definitely moved the genes from clostridium that are used to make butanol and put them into both E. coli and yeast, as we had said before, good industrial hosts. But what happens is that if you only take the genes that have been naturally evolved for this pathway, then um, it's not necessarily optimized for getting the highest yield of butanol. It's been optimized so that it can be regulated by the natural or native clostridial host for its own purposes. So what we discovered was is that we needed to look at the product butanol and ask how to accumulate a large amount of it in terms of the pathway that we're designing that went into the E. coli. And so what we found is that we replaced one of the enzymes in the pathway from something similar from a third bacterium, and that allowed us to build up a large amount of butanol. What was the third bacterium? There are three bacteria now involved in, in making this fuel. It was Tryponema denticola, and it's actually, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> Do you have a nickname for it? Uh, we usually abbreviate the genus, so just T. denticola. So T. denticola and Clostridium and E. coli are all coming together to create this butanol. We can smell it when it's growing, and so that's an easy way to tell if something works or not. Can I smell any? Is there any here to smell? <laughs> they smell pretty bad. <laughs> Does it smell like gasoline? Um, no, butanol smells worse than gasoline. That might be a concern in the future. <laughs> You can touch it with your bare hands? Um, yeah. Oh, actually, I just got a whiff. Is that it? Yeah, so it has, you can um, smell it growing when it's produced at high enough levels. That does smell kind of dank. <laughs> On top of the bacterial smell, I guess, that makes it even worse. Yeah. Now, this is not enough what you have here, and it certainly hasn't been refined, but I don't think that would fuel my car. Basically, this is the first generation of our strain. We haven't tested it industrially, which is necessary to ask whether it's enough, but I think with two to fourfold improvement, I think that we can start to look at development of a commercial process. Can you help me get my head around that, or how you take the small amount of butanol here produced by E. coli, by this bacteria, and you make enough, you scale it up so that you can actually put it into cars. How do you do that? How does one do that? So right now in the lab, what we do is we look at efficiency, which is how much of the butanol gets made from the sugar that gets put into the process. And that's the only thing we can really compare. When you scale it up, what you do is you grow it in basically probably a million gallon fermenter or something close, and you grow it to a very high cell number, and that amplifies the amount that you make. And then the molecule has to be removed from that, and part of the benefit of butanol, it's easier to remove than ethanol is, so that costs less energy. And um, lastly, as, as we're standing here, I'm still getting wafting smells of this butanol. Do you think you could engineer into the E. coli perhaps the gene of the sweet-smelling rose and you could turn into a butanol a fuel that also smelled like flowers? Yes, actually you can, but anything that you make on top of it will take away from the total yield of the fuel that we can get. Okay, so we'll have to consider that balance. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Michelle Chang thinks big about the very small as an assistant professor of chemistry at the University of California, Berkeley. Synthetic biology has a really significant role that it can play in making second generation biofuels a reality because we need to be able to produce this at large scales at low cost and synthetic biology offers the way to be able to do that by producing enzymes and so on at much lower cost that could allow us to go from lab to commercial production and even to produce drop-in fuels like butanol that could be directly blended with gasoline and would have the same properties as gasoline. It can be scaled up, it would be environmentally beneficial, so that's a very promising approach to take. Madhu Khanna is professor of agriculture and environmental economics at the University of Illinois. Thanks to her for helping us frame the big picture of biofuels. Okay, I appreciate all that plants or engineered bugs can do to fuel my future, but forget trips to the grocery store. I mean, could these new fuels power a trip to the stars? 
Richard Obusi is a physicist who heads a volunteer group called Project Icarus. Richard, alternative fuels are definitely au courant. Corn from the great American Midwest may soon be fueling my car if it doesn't already. But what about rockets? Any chance for biofuels helping us get into space? That's going to be a question of whether the biofuels are able to deliver enough thrust. Now, one of the wonderful things about rocket fuel is that it has a relatively high specific impulse such that it generates enough power so that you can essentially lift the fuel itself and the rocket. Well, Rich, let's step back a minute and look at the big picture. Our rockets go at uh, more or less what speed? About seven miles a second or so, something yep, like that? Yeah, about that. Okay, now that's plenty good if you're going to the moon or going to Mars. You can get there in days or, or months, something like that. At that speed, however, how long does it take to go to the stars? Uh, you know, to get to even the closest stars, Proxima Centauri, for example, a little over four light years away, would take on the order of 75,000 years. So to use rocket fuel to reach the stars in a time frame that is consistent with sort of human lifetime, I mean, it's, it's completely inconceivable. Does that apply to all chemical rockets? And, you know, when I say chemical rockets, what that means is that, you know, they've got some sort of fuel that essentially you burn it, and the hot stuff comes out the back end of the rocket at high speed. That's the way they all work today. Can, can these chemical rockets ever be practical for interstellar travel, or do you, is that just a non-starter? It's a complete non-starter. When you're looking at chemical rockets, if you use what's called the Tsiolkovsky rocket equation and, you know, you attempt to calculate how much rocket fuel you would need to reach an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, which would be necessary to reach the stars in a human lifetime, you actually come up that you would need more rocket fuel than there exists matter in the known universe. So it's physically impossible to use rocket fuel to reach the stars in timescales of a human lifetime. Well, it sounds to me that if we really intend to boldly go, as they say on Star Trek, we're going to need a new paradigm. We need a new type of rocket, right? Or at least a new type of rocket fuel. That's exactly right. And that's what we're studying now. And, you know, we've been interested in fusion energy for a number of years now. And that's the type of fuel that would, you know, if we ever decided to invest the time, the money and the effort, then uh, fusion fuel is a very likely possibility for interstellar rockets. Are you talking about a rocket that carries up a bunch of hydrogen and converts it into helium? Pretty much, that's it, sir. Nuclear fusion is what, what powers the sun, and this is exactly the kind of energy process that we're attempting to harness here. It's not without its challenges. To date, our human technology is, is aware of nuclear fission and nuclear fusion. Now, we've, I don't know if mastered is too strong a word, but we've arguably mastered nuclear fission in that we can use the energy release not just in an uncontrolled manner, namely weapons, but also in a controlled manner. We have fission-powered power stations. But we've been attempting to harness fusion in a controlled manner for at least about 50, 50, 60 years now. And we're able to extract energy in an uncontrollable fashion. You know, you, you, you named thermonuclear weapons. But what we really want to do is use that energy peacefully and in a controlled manner for propulsion. And efforts and a lot of research has been conducted into, into actually being able to accomplish this. I was recently at the National Ignition Facility here in California where they're trying to control fusion in order to produce power that you can use, you know, to run the light bulbs in your house. Yeah. And, you know, they, they think they're close. They've been saying that for a long time, but maybe this time they really are close. Yeah. Uh, sooner or later they're going to do it. But doggone it, that was in a building that, you know, <laughs> was bigger than the apartment complex yeah. I used to live in. And, you know, it was a big thing. I, I can hardly imagine something like that fitting into a rocket. So how close are we to ever being able to use fusion in a space vehicle? Uh, that's a wonderful question, <laughs> and, I, and I quite like the way you say it. It's all, nuclear fusion always seems just down the road. I remember first learning about nuclear fusion when I was a schoolboy in the 1990s, and it was 20 years away, and it seems like it's always 20 years away. But we are making progress. You know, what you alluded to was the fact that, you know, this was a huge facility. But what you have to remember is that the vast amount of fusion research that's going on now, a lot of the money and a lot of the work that's going on is in power extraction, namely you want to use that fusion process to power power stations and, and use, the, use the energy sort of usefully to, to power our lights and our houses and, and, and what have you. We don't need quite that same degree of control over the fusion process because essentially what we just want to do is expel 
at high velocity a gas out the back of a spacecraft. So that's sort of one way to answer your question. And another way is that Project Icarus is looking at credible extrapolations of current technology. So a few of the things that we're looking at now is using um, X-ray lasers, positron lasers, and so forth. What we're looking at is alternatives to the type of way the fusion process actually occurs in the National Ignition Facility. Project Icarus. This is reminiscent of a project that was begun many years ago, decades ago now, I think, a Project Orion that yeah. was using, I guess, fission power for rockets. And that came to a halt once, uh, I, I think, the nuclear disarmament agreements called a halt to that. Yeah, yeah. But are you actually building anything as they were? Are you, you actually constructing hardware to test out this rocket? No, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, the uh, Project Orion... The idea of using fission power for propulsion was initially proposed by uh, Stanislaw Ulam at Los Alamos in, in the late 1940s. And then in 1958, as you mentioned, Ted Taylor initiated Project Orion. And they were funded to the tune of several million dollars. They produced a lot of output, a lot of papers. I want to emphasize that Orion was fission-based technology, but what we're looking at is fusion-based technology. So that's one of the big differences. The Orion team did actually come up with an experimental prototype to demonstrate the type of propulsion, which is a little different to rocket, the conventional rocket propulsion. What we're looking at is something called pulsed fusion propulsion, and they were looking at pulsed fission propulsion, and they, they created this device they called the putt-putt device, which sort of demonstrated that the technology was possible. But we're not actually at this stage building anything. This is a, theor a five-year theoretical design study. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not experimenting with any <laughs> ultra-high-powerful explosives or anything dodgy like that. Well, if you're not actually building something, I have to ask this question, slightly embarrassing, but who's paying your salary? I mean, who's paying for this? Oh, another good question. We are 100% volunteer. Uh, we're we're an extremely dedicated team. We've been going since October of 2009. We have about uh, 20 team members, about six consultants and three students. We're 100% volunteer. We, we have a donations page on our website, but, um, you know, we're not talking, we haven't received sort of massive amounts, so we're putting our own time and effort, our weekends, our evenings into this. At last count, last October 2010, I tallied up estimates of how much time, and uh, we had an estimate of uh, about 5,000 person hours that had been put in. I would say that figure now is close to probably to about eight or 9,000 hours that we've put in. So we're 100% we're volunteer, very dedicated. Rich Obusi, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. As head of Project Icarus, Richard Obusi hopes to harness the creative energy of humans to fuel a trip to the stars. Well, Seth, you know, we've heard a lot about a lot of different sources of biofuel. There's an incredible variety of approaches out there. Yep, whether it's growing corn, grass, algae, or just creating a designer bug to do the work. I mean, when you get right down to it, Molly, all of this is an attempt to find new ways to turn sunlight into fuels that will send us down the freeways. Or, or maybe across the galaxy. Well, maybe. I don't know. They're going to find some process. Maybe it's going to be a whole handful of processes that are efficient enough and cheap enough that we don't have to keep drilling for the energy that keeps our modern society on the go. Well, it's an exciting time in fuel production. And now is the exciting time to acknowledge the energy that goes into the production of the program. Thanks to our producer, Gary Niederhoff, production assistant, Barbara Vance, and volunteer, Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and you prefer radio, well, check out the listings on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Okay, Molly, let, let's go for a walk. I, I need to burn off this fuel I just ate for lunch. Talk about biomass. Okay, well, what's that you're drinking, by the way? Oh, it's just some uh, bottled ethanol. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.